Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch, and with me is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Hello. This week, we are revisiting a movie that we missed talking about last year, Bumblebee, directed by Travis Knight and written by Christina Hodson. It's a movie that has a lot going for it in terms of action, humor, and surprisingly, a good bit of heart, especially for a story in the uh, Transformers franchise. So let's go ahead and drop into our conversation. No need to delay. Let's get started with our one-word takeaways. Aaron, do you want to kick us off? Yes, my one word takeaway is spoilers, because here be spoilers. <laughs> and we are you know going... what? after a hundred and something episodes, you'd think I would be able to remember that. The big <laughs> yellow thing. It's in here. the notes in yellow. It's yeah, in the no. notes, or, yeah. I Sorry. just wanted to let everyone Spoiler. know, of course, because we are gonna spoil this. If you haven't seen Bumblebee, um you should. I did want to make sure you mentioned it because someone just the other day when I had posted saying I was doing my rewatch, they commented on my Facebook post saying that they were watching it for the first time that night. So there are people out there that haven't got around to seeing this. Uh, if you haven't, you should. We both really like it. We'll just kind of spoil it up front and tell you that. Go check it out and then come back and listen. With that out of the way, Patrick, my real one-word takeaway is nostalgic. Both times I've watched this movie, I thought of our friends at Retro Rewind Podcast and their rating system of either tragic, classic, or nostalgic. Um, I place this firmly in the nostalgic category, because it feels like a throwback to those 80s adventure films that we enjoyed so much and that we grew up on. It's really no surprise that Spielberg was involved in this production, and you can really see his influence everywhere. The sensibility is sweet, and the story has a really good heart to it. I love the music. Um, it is some surprisingly dark villains. It has really fun action sequences and, of course, the obligatory, over-the-top, cheesy ending because it's appealing to us on an emotional level, which both kind of works and kind of doesn't. The formula is all there. So while I wouldn't quite ever think of this one as a classic, that is to say a film that maybe sets the standard for what it does, I think that it is a really fun reboot of the franchise by Travis Knight, and I will always remember it fondly. It's a great word, and it really does capture a lot of what Bumblebee brings to the table in terms of throwbacks and things like that. We'll get into that more in detail as the conversation rolls on. But for me, there were a lot of words that I was toying around with, but the word that I settled on was satisfaction. And really, I'm going to only say this piece of criticism from Michael Bay's films because I could go – all night talking about Bay, we, we know this, so I don't need to rehash any of my dislike for uh, the majority of his movies. But I felt like the way in which the Transformers franchise has evolved, I'm feeling like I'm singing the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. I mean, there is less and less about the franchise that I liked. And so when Bumblebee rolls around, sorry, no pun intended, it it brings with it this sense of from the trailers. I'm like, this feels a little different. It feels a little bit softer. It feels a little bit more approachable. It feels like it's got some kind of emotion to it. It doesn't look like it's a bunch of explosions and close up shots of fight sequences and the cool factor being kind of the forefront. So 
I actually intentionally waited until we were going to cover this because I knew it was going to come up at some point to watch it for the first time. I was one of those people, like that person on social media that was watching this for the first time. I got my first time rewatch out of the way last night. And from the very, very beginning, seeing Cybertron and seeing the fight and seeing what I envision as my Autobots and my Decepticons, hearing the voices, hearing Soundwave, I was satisfied. And I was like, if the rest of the movie is going to do this, then count me in. It's already a three-star movie. And you and I know three-star movies are good. This is not a dog on it, but it can only go, you know, it starts out at a good thing for me. And I was so relieved that it turned out to be more than just satisfying, that it turned out to be an important step in what the Transformers franchise could be, even if we don't get any future installments, because this was a prequel. And I think that knowing that we may not get something in the future, this could set the stage for if there's a Transformers reboot in the future, maybe it takes this kind of tone. Maybe it finds that balance of great action with some good humor and fantastic writing where it's appropriate. I feel like a movie like this got the writing that it deserved. That's why I wanted to give a shout out to the writer in the intro, not just the director, who, by the way, president of Leica Studios, also lead animator and director of Kubo and the Two Strings. So there's a lot of trust that you have with a creative mind like that. And to to have a writer that I think supports that the way that the way that she did, it really left me feeling satisfied on the whole. And uh, it's one that eventually will make it into the Voodoo Library. I'll say this already. And uh, if we never get a sequel, that's okay. This will be one that's perfectly fine on its own. Yeah, that's the reaction I expected as I texted you both before and after you watched it. I knew that you were going to love this from the moment that I saw it in the theater. And I'm really glad because I love it when you get to find a movie that you are going to enjoy. And that 80s aesthetic is right up your alley. Yeah, that was a that was a plus one for me. What I appreciated was the fact that that wasn't the thing that made it great for me. Because it wasn't it in was... high school. Yes, that's just, this is true. Well, <laughs> to begin with, I wanted to kind of uh, piggyback off of that comment that I made regarding uh, expectations. As Bumblebee became something different out of the Transformers universe, it didn't ignore what came before it being a prequel. And I know that when it started getting buzz, when it started being seen in the trailer, the trailer started showing up, you and I had these conversations about, hey, this is interesting. This movie Bumblebee, it it's Transformers, but it doesn't feel like Michael Bay Transformers. And so I, I wanted to ask you the expectations that you had going in. Did you have any at all? Were you expecting something different because of the creative team and how did this differ for you in terms of maybe what you expected versus what you got or did it did it not this was pretty much exactly what i expected actually um the creative team being travis knight as far as the director and you already mentioned all the things that i would have said about why i thought that this would be different when we got it announced and we learned that michael bay wasn't going to be directing 
Um, I, I did some sleuthing, so I knew going into it that he was a producer, but also that Spielberg was a producer, which gave me a little bit of a hope that this was going to be different. And then the trailers, I, I watched them, so I knew that the tone felt a lot more or a lot less Michael Bay-y. Um, we didn't know what the action was going to look like, but I think we expected that it would be a little less risque in some ways, especially Haley Steinfeld signed on. We kind of knew that that's not her thing. She's never done movies like that. She's more of the girl next door, the teenage girl next door. So, um, I, you know, we, I think or I went into it with the idea that it was going to be a more fun kind of better adaptation of the cartoon more than anything or of the source material. And I, I, like you, was really blown away at the beginning by the Cybertron sequence. I thought that was awesome. Um, it was an incredible opening action sequence. I, I loved the Autobots and the Septicons and getting to see different ones that we wanted to, like Soundwave, even if it was for just a second. Of course, I had to explain to my daughter like why one of the Transformers or Decepti- – was it a Decepticon? He's a Decepticon, right? Um, why one of them is not actually a car and – how the Decepticons are various different things. I had to go through all that. And um, it, it was it was really fun. And I actually liked it so much <laughs> that it was both a pro and a con because I could watch an entire film centered around action sequences based on this home world or exploring Cybertron and like the scale of it was incredible. At first, it looks like the Transformers are really big against the buildings, but then when we start to pull out and we start to see how small a Transformer is in comparison to the buildings, and then you realize how large the Transformers are, you start to get that sense of bigness of this world. And I would have loved to know more about like how it works, what was going on. Like this movie doesn't tell us anything about why Cybertron is falling, really, other than just the Decepticons invaded and that that's it. So I really enjoyed it. It got my blood pumping and the action was so coherent while we were getting introduced to all these characters. That was the big plus for me. It was like, all right, you knew right away you weren't going to have that messy, crazy action of Michael Bay that you just couldn't tell what was going on. And then the con of that is that we never really reach this level again with the action sequences. We get some action, but I don't think that we get a lot of it. There are one or two really good sequences in the movie that I could point to for me. But for the most part, it's condensed into this opening. So it was both really awesome and kind of also in a way slightly a letdown because I didn't get to see more of it. For sure. And it's a great way to introduce a movie, but I don't think that the movie was designed to center around action because to me, this is an origin story. This centers around Bumblebee. And I think that's what I, I I liked about it more than anything was that it was centered around a singular transformer, a singular Autobot. And what I think the struggle with the Transformers franchise as a whole is that we got introduced with we did get introduced to bumblebee through sam witwicky but then we get this explosion of transformers like everybody's here and it was satisfying at first but then i think visually it's too much and what i think knight and company do is they give us an established setting 
here's the conflict and let's send Bumblebee to Earth. And then we have his adventure along with Charlie. And I think that for me, that felt a lot more satisfying in terms of I could digest that more because I wasn't trying to absorb big action sequences and here's a story and there's some humor and here's some drama. It all felt like it balanced itself out. I do feel like we got such a big, great sequence at the beginning that everything else did feel diminished. In fact, the third act felt a little bit kind of eh. But at the same time, my focus was not on crazy action sequences and choreography. It was really about relationships back and forth between Charlie and B. And I think that was the focus. And to me, that succeeded because we saw facial expressions. We saw her reacting to what he was doing and him reacting to what she was doing. And there was these small moments that I don't think we would have gotten if we had had a heavy action movie. Now, that being said, if there were future installments where we got to see maybe more origin stories or uh, I was reading on Screen Rant about how one of the plot holes between this and the original Transformers is that there's this 20 year gap where we see in the mid credit sequence of Bumblebee that Prime is on Earth and then we see the other Autobots coming down. But that happens 20 years before B actually sends a distress call to wherever that kicks off the original Transformers movie. So there's always room to create maybe more adventures between that if you want to fill in that plot hole. But the fact is, I didn't mind it. And I think that being able to maybe individualize these Autobots is what we like as adults looking back at our childhood. We liked having our favorite Autobot. You know, Bumblebee was up there, but everybody loved Optimus Prime. And there was, you know, Soundwave, whether it was an Autobot or Decepticon, we had a particular robot that we liked and we cherished. And I think that Bumblebee as a movie gives us that sense of connection because we have a chance to focus on him and in particular his relationship with with Charlie, which I think was another element of the cartoon. I wasn't really aware of that, but I would agree and say it's actually kind of like a Marvel origin story. In a lot of ways. And it's, in a sense, if we were expecting this big, long franchise leading up to a team-up of sorts or a big team-up movie with all the action in it, you could see them introducing various Transformers in that way, right? With the Bumblebee movie and then whoever else is big and then an Optimus Prime type movie where it kind of works its way up to everybody getting together where Michael Bay just was Justice League. And we got very little pieces of them all mixed in, introduced at the same time. So I agree. And don't get me wrong on the opening there. I'm not saying it ruined the movie for me. I'm just saying it gave me a standard of action that I had not seen in the Transformers universe that I wanted more of. And so I was not disappointed because that's not the direction the movie went. But I I just wanted more of it and I can't have it yet. So, so that's what that would be my hope is that future installments, we see more of those big sequences because now Prime is back on Earth and now we have more of that. And, I, and I'll tell you, I think what did it for me was the fact that I say this tongue in cheek, but kind of seriously, I could see what was going on. Like there was room to see movement. There was room to show these Autobots and Decepticons in a frame 
in ways that felt very dramatic and you it gave me a chance to say, Oh, look, there's sound wave. Oh, here comes the, you know, here comes the, the cassette tape, but it gave you a chance to really enjoy those moments. And, and I like that. And that wasn't just with the action sequences. There was a lot of that going on throughout the movie where we got to kind of linger on these moments so that we could take in the beauty that was some of the CG and some of the choreography, something that I think was missing with the Transformers movies because it got a little heavy handed with the action. It reminded me a lot, the way this movie came about reminded me a lot of the Ninja Turtles movies that we covered several years ago and how I was apprehensive about those because we had said, those aren't my turtles. (laughs) And also Michael Bay's name was attached to it. But again, as an EP, you don't necessarily have full creative control. And I think what the, the Turtles movies did in terms of being able to scale back some of the big action and over-sexualization that we're used to in a lot of Bay stuff. I think the same thing happened here with Bumblebee, only the writing and the directing is a lot more top-notch. And I think that when you have someone like Michael Bay as an EP as opposed to a director and giving that creative control to someone like Knight and company, it allows Bay's vision to exist. So there's cohesion as an EP, but at the same time, you give them that freedom to be able to tell that story. And in a lot of ways, it is like a Marvel origin story, only you're not trying to connect a shared universe, which is kind of the best of both worlds, right? Because you're giving a, a director his own creative control within a universe that's established, but he gets to tell his own story. Well, early on, the the movie makes these strong hints at Charlie's relationship with her dad. And I say strong hints. I mean, there's nothing subtle about it. The very moment we get to see Charlie, she's getting up and Haley Steinfeld's just great. The teen angst is like her mojo. That's what she does, the teen angst. And so she's brushing her teeth and she's doing the whole thing with the, with, you know, the drumming for like 45 seconds. It feels like, and then she leaves and she says, bye dad. And she kisses the, the photo. So, Already we know, hey, there's history. She's lost her dad. Something's happened. And so he's gone. And over the course of the movie, she's trying to kind of move on in her own ways. So B comes along. And they both sort of make this connection. And I'm looking at B and I'm going, you know, how does Bumblebee as a character help Charlie work through this grief or through this season that she's in? Because we we don't really get a time frame of when this happened, of how long she's kind of been dealing with this. At, at least I didn't pick up on that. Maybe maybe you did from your from your rewatch. But how does B help Charlie work through this grief of of dealing with her dad's loss? Well, I would disagree with you that she's working on healing and dealing with the grief. <laughs> Okay. I don't get a sense that she is dealing with it. And that's kind of part of the problem is that she's kind of living in it and almost shut down because of it. I think she's still not able to really process it and move on. I think that's where she's at and learning to embrace and and deal with it head on and start to envision a life in the future without her dad is kind of 
where her story arc does go. I thought that B's loss of memory and loss of voice and him trying to figure out who he is works out as a great parallel to her. And I think that that's why they're able to connect. That's why he's able to help her is because he understands. And on some level, it feels like he must have enough of a memory to know that he was something and that he's missing his memory. At least that's the feeling I get. It doesn't feel like he's this character that doesn't know what he is like species wise or whatever. It's like, he's aware of his race and maybe like what he did, but not specifics. And it's hard because he's not giving us dialogue and exposition to explain that. That's just how I read it. Um, I think that him doing things like pushing her forward uh, at the cliff is a great example where he puts out his door. It's also hilarious. Um, she goes up there and, you know, their guy's going to dive off the cliff and he's heard her story and realizes that she used to be a diver. And so he's like, hey, get your butt out there and give it a shot. Uh, that's a really fun little scene that kind of shows him pushing her forward to try and help her overcome it in the way that he thinks is best for her. It's interesting because in a way he's doing the same thing as her parents or her mom and her new husband. They want her to deal with it in a certain way. They're like, just get over it. Just be happy and smile and just let it go. B is also trying to push her forward. And he's like, Hey, just go do this thing that you love. Right. And that's going to help you snap out of it. And in a way, Everybody is trying to help her, and it's all coming from the heart, but she has to realize it for herself. Sure. So I think that she's at the very beginning of the five stages of grief. There's definitely denial happening right here. And then I think in some ways she goes through those five stages through her relationship with B. But it makes me wonder why he is entrenched in wanting her to do these things in a similar way to her mom and stepdad. But what investment does he have? Like what reason does he have to want to push her forward? I mean, I don't know other than that he has a good heart. I mean, the only reason I get in the narrative to me is that this is just who Bumblebee is. And so though he may have lost his memory, he is still inherently the same good person that Act, would act this way if he had his memory. Sure. I think that you're exactly right. It says a ton about the fact that his innate sense of well-being and wanting to see the best in people and wanting to fulfill a purpose exists in his relationship with Charlie. Because the fact is, he doesn't have much at this point. You know, he's lost his voice. He's lost <clears throat> his memory. But I think that he's trying to regain those things through his relationship with her. And I think that what's interesting about any relationship where you have memory loss or you have a person trying to learn about their connection with the world around them through another person, we've seen this a lot in other, in other stories, some Nicholas Sparks movies and or books turn movies, but in romantic ways where you have someone who connects with someone else and at some point, there's the aha moment, like, oh, my gosh, I realize who I am. But I think the beauty of B's relationship with Charlie is that with what he does for her is because he's compelled to. 
he's compelled to, even though he's afraid sometimes, even though he doesn't really know this world that he's in, he's compelled because it's who he is. And so even if he's lost a lot of stuff, he hasn't lost his sense of purpose. Whatever that is, it may just be being redefined. And he also is receiving comfort and security and safety vibes from her. So he immediately knows that this is a person that is not out to hurt him, whereas he just came from a situation where the military is portrayed in this film very much stereotypically, uh, where, you know, as soon as he appears, it's bang, 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 shoot the thing that we don't know. They have no earthly idea what he is, and they're already attacking him and trying to kill him. It's right. it's actually pretty sad, honestly, because they don't waste any time at all trying to nuke the heck out of Bumblebee and when this alien species shows up, right? There's right. no trying to learn about him and figure out like, oh, hey, what might this thing be? And it, and it all comes without him doing anything at all. No aggression, mm-hmm. no attacking, zip. It's just an out of fear. And I know it's set in the Cold War era and that's probably part of it. And it's also, you know, driving the action. That's what he's experienced, and I know all of his memories aren't back, but if you have some of that built into that inherent memory or whatever he has, here's somebody that's taking care of him from the start. So. Right. So I think when you have something like Lady Bird with Greta Gerwig, who rounds out characters that you wouldn't expect, that you have stereotypical vibes toward, and you get more about them, so it kind of takes away your stereotypes, while that's effective for a movie like Lady Bird, I think for a movie like Bumblebee, those stereotypes are appropriate because they amplify the central relationship of B and Charlie. So when B meets Charlie and Charlie meets B, they both are characters you want to root for. You want them to connect and you want them to find some kind of common ground. And there's this really fantastic moment where it's just after he transforms and he's all freaked out and she has the wrench in her back pocket or she's holding it and she ends up putting it in her back pocket and she puts her arm, her hands up like this to show she's not going to hurt him. And it's almost like he's a cat or a dog where he leans in and he allows her to touch his face and he closes his eyes. I love that moment because that to me starts the emotional connection that we can have with them. We want them to now go on this adventure together and to support each other. And so everything that comes on after that, from the humor to the drama to the sincere little pockets that they have together, pays itself off because we've gotten that early on. Could that have been done without that sequence with the stereotypical army folks? Probably. But I think those things book in themselves really nicely with this great heart story in the middle of it because by the end when you have uh when you have john cena's character coming around and kind of humorously saying you know go on my friends are going to be here in a couple of minutes that's expected too you know he's not going to necessarily he there's no depth to his character he's changed but he's changed because of what we expected him to you know he's seen that b is now a good guy but he's still apprehensive but that wasn't the point john cena's character represents what the 80s Cold War stereotype is, which is be afraid of everything that doesn't look like you. And this is probably... it's Russian. It's Russian, exactly. 
you know, it reminds me of the, the line from the abyss. Tell me that wasn't a Russian water submersible, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And, and, and I like that. I like that we don't have to go into too much depth because that's not what the story's about. It's not about the battle with the government. It's about these two individuals. Well, and to speaking about like B's kind of inherent knowledge and understanding of the people around him, my almost CP was the moment when he reacts to Cena's character pushing Charlie down at the end after they've tried to save him from the military facility. And he's being dragged off by these harpoon um, chains and he sees her get pushed down because she's fighting against Cena to get to him. And he looks completely helpless up until that moment. But then it's just a switch. You would almost call it an involuntary switch that goes off and his shield comes down. And it's like he realizes, oh, oh this is who I am. Like my, I exist to defend those that need defending. I exist to protect those that I love. His eyes get red, and it's a great moment, of course, where he smacks Cena across the, the map <laughs> in a retaliation. But that that switch that happens in his face, and of course, part of that is the expressiveness that we get of his character, which is awesome. Just the the mask going down into protector mode, the moment that she gets harmed, is another really great scene of him trying to show that he cares about her. Absolutely. And this is where I think, whether it's intended or not, the line more than meets the eye really comes into play with regards to Bumblebee. Because I'm going to say this. I love seeing how B lost his voice more than I loved seeing how Fury lost his eye. Okay. Oh, well, for sure. (laughs) That was a phenomenal sequence, by the way. I I, I think it is. Yeah. Go ahead. I love Starscream, first of all. And I thought, oh, my God, they gave me Starscream. So I was really excited. And then he gets killed, and I was really mad. And it wasn't (laughs) until later that I realized that they actually used a character named Blitzwing, and they recolored him into Starscream's colors. So it was almost like an intentional feint on the movie maker's part, I really believe. Uh, But my goodness gracious, that whole sequence was just awesome. And yeah, especially like seeing how he lost his voice and getting to witness that it gave it a lot more depth. And I I was able to care a lot more about it being gone and how he came to be able to speak through the radio. Right. And that became equally as important because that was a journey, a part of a journey. It wasn't the complete journey, him regaining his voice, but it was part of, of helping him understand who he actually was. Like all these little pieces that helped remind him, not that he was a robot, not that he was an Autobot, not that he was even, you know, B-127 or whatever it was, but the fact that he was meant to do something. And I think that over the course of the narrative, what Charlie did for him was helped open up more of his memories open up more of his personality open up more of his ability to be more confident in who he was i loved seeing him go from a not really arrogant but a confident warrior to being entirely almost destroyed 
then going to being meek, and then growing into a what I think is a new kind of confidence, one that has history with a human being as opposed to history with his Autobot comrades. So having both of those, I think, changed him, which if we're going to go back to our love for what's in a name, the fact that he says, call me Bumblebee, means something. Because it's not that he was just given that name by Charlie, but that name means something new. That name means more than what he was known by on Cybertron. And the movie, I think, really does a great job at being able to flesh that out over those, you know, that less than two hour time period where we have him losing something but gaining more back as a result. And I think to me, that's a great character arc to have a non-human entity get me to care about his growth. That's pretty amazing. I mean, that says a lot about the whole creative team, not just the writing and directing, but the the CG that takes place with that, you know? Well, speaking of, I want to talk a little bit about the technicals. There was a lot that I mentioned before that opening sequence of Cybertron, being able to slow down and see these robots for a few seconds and being able to kind of live and love in those moments of seeing what Megatron looked like, seeing Soundwave, seeing Optimus Prime, just being able to linger on those. First of all, I love the character design. I love the fact that they are more akin to the, the 80s cartoon and the, the toy line as opposed to the more steampunk, not steampunk, but the more robotic, uh, technical, whatever the, the Michael Bay design was, the more the edgy, I guess, that we got. I love the fact that we went back to the original design because that's what, what I loved growing up with. And that we got to see really great choreography. But to me, I think the thing that stood out more than anything was the emoting of a character 100%. like B. I think that, we've, we've said this before with, uh, with War of the Planet of the Apes, the way in which you have these facial expressions that do more than just evoke a sense of one emotion or two emotions. They tell a whole story. And they give depth to a character. Now when you've got that face that's actually limited because of its mechanics, you have eyes that go dim versus getting bigger. Even what you mentioned earlier about the armor shield coming over, that reaction, involuntary or not, to me, those things say a ton about the emotional state of B in that given moment. Yeah, I mean, his expressiveness is really amazing. And, and the mannerisms he uses, they are, to me, something that I think are a direct reflection of the man, Travis Knight, making this movie. So we mentioned before he comes from an animation background, stop motion animation, and heads like a studios. And I think that his understanding of puppets really plays a role here because I felt at times like Bumblebee and the other Transformers might be like gigantic robotic puppets. Um, that's how it came across to me, very much like the animation style that they do. And so that was huge. I mean, just huge. You care about him so much more when you see him making these various faces and exhibiting 
fear and excitement and surprise and all of these different emotions. He just doesn't look the same. Um, Cliff Jumper. There's a great scene where he's being questioned by the two villains, Shatter and Dropkick. And they are asking him, you know, to tell them where B is. And he just keeps repeating his military name and rank. I love that moment. But the way that his face looked, like you can feel the fear in him as well. And so it's not just B. And I think that that's important. B gives us the gamut because that's what his character arc is. But we get to see it in all of the Transformers. It's consistent. And that definitely immerses you into the world and makes you care about everything that's happening on a much more emotional level. Right. When when Charlie is training him to hide on the beach, when they go out there and some of it's played for laughs, what I what I was picking up was there are moments when B looks like a child um, early on in the garage. He curls up into like the fetal position with his arms wrapped around his knees. There's this great moment when they're in the woods and she's trying to fix his, it's almost like this, this Luke Skywalker R2D2 moment where it's she very much where very she, much. where she finds that communication thing by mistake directly from Star Wars. I know, it's so funny, but I don't know if a lot of people notice this At, before she does that, before she tells him to lay down, his feet are just kind of, moving lightly like back and forth like a little kid would you know with his with his legs spread out just kind of waiting around and it's just little things like that that make make him feel innocent make him feel young and i think that his movements the way in which he runs the way in which he stands changes over the course of the film to reinforce that symbolism that he's growing up again that he is it's his own little coming of age arc where he can't talk. His voice isn't changing. Well, it is changing, but it's not like he's going through puberty or anything like that. But everything about the way he moves and the way he acts and the way in which he emotes with his face brings about a sense of, okay, he's growing. He's getting better. He's not just, he's not just learning, but he's getting more mature like a kid does as he gets older. And there were parts of it that reminded me of the reason that I love having dogs is because the way in which they lay down when they're tired or when they're pouting or when they're sad, he does that a couple of times where he'll just lay down with his face kind of, kind of shrunk a little bit. Like when they go on the, when they go on the, uh, the toilet paper excursion, when they're trying to, to roll the, the mean girl's house and then they start throwing the eggs and he stomps the car and then he tries to hide behind the car and he's just kind of creeping behind, like, that's what my dog would do. Oh, I'm in trouble, so I'm just going to hide. And then eventually, you know, he takes off. I just, I love that because it's not just played for laughs. Those are the plus ones that it really does feel like he's young and that he is just learning and he's having a good time. I think that when you can do that with a character that doesn't have a lot that he can do with his face and you reinforce it with the rest of his bodily expressions, to me, that's an amazing thing. And I would love to sit down with Knight and say, okay, how does this translate in terms of its complexity from stop motion to CGI? Like, do you have mocap suits doing this? And do you have to direct that differently than you would maybe a, a stop motion type thing? But I think the spirit of it is what gives Bumblebee 
as a movie, its strength is the fact that you have a guy who pays attention to that stuff, you know? I completely agree. And that's where I was saying I love that it's consistent because Shatter and Dropkick and Blitzwing during all of these villain moments, they exhibit equally expressive anger and hate and surprise even like when uh, Dropkick blows the first guy into to whatever he like evaporates him into this blob of water and he yeah. just says i like the way they pop like you can see it on his face like there's this gleeful evil in him and it looks different than he looks when he's standing there and they're having the moment at the roadblock right where shatter is starting to kind of reason with the troops and drop kicks like what are you doing like you know we can kill these people like what are you why would you do what these people want you to do and his, his facial expressions, they show those different things. The body, the way they stand, the way they hold their posture. Yeah, it's really, really amazing. And I think, for me, it's one of the things that elevates the film a little bit above some of its silly pieces. Right. And I think knowing that and seeing that these characters look a lot like the 80s characters that we remember really helps that we're not having to get used to brand new character designs like we see optimus prime at the beginning that's what optimus prime looks like and that's what bumblebee looks like because he was originally a beetle having that kind of familiarity and having that kind of nostalgia connection i think really helps and this is a movie that is ripe with nostalgia as you mentioned earlier in your one more takeaway there is no apology to the things that are going on in this movie the fact that it takes place in the 80s <laughs> appropriately enough and as a prequel it has to because you know we're trying to connect these you know these stories together but does that work for you knowing that it's taking place in the 80s does that time period feel pretty accurate for someone who grew up that way did that work for you yes it absolutely did i think that the one scene that did it the best that really made me kind of go ha 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 was when they went egging and toilet papering um the house of <laughs> the girl that is such a jerk to charlie i was telling my kids about it i was like oh my gosh you guys never got to experience this right like this is what we did in high school and i'm just like laughing and the kids are like what is going on right now <laughs> and it was just a great little conversation we had because i was trying to explain to them how it should have gone down because when it happens in the movie it's Absolutely not the way that we would have toilet paper to house and or egg a car since we couldn't, you know, crush it with our foot or hands. But um, that was a really cool nod to the 80s. I think Bumblebee learning from pop culture, whether it's movies or music, specifically The Breakfast Club, learning the one hand salute at the end of The Breakfast Club and then implementing that back was the best moment for me when Cena salutes him at the end of the movie and he responds by doing the breakfast club moment. And I, I thought that that was implemented really well instead of just showing him showing it on TV as like, Oh, Hey, you know, this was a movie that was in the eighties. It kind of, he learns from that culture and learns something about it. Uh, and I, I just really enjoyed the soundtrack overall i mean every single song feels perfectly placed and is a joy absolutely and knowing that when i was watching it with krisha she gravitated towards the time period because she's four years older than me so she was really 
equally as much a, a young teenager in the 80s as much as I was. So being able to see kind of how she responded to the different things and kind of bobbing her head when you had a familiar song come on the radio or when you see the way in which these guys are dressing. I had a, honestly, I had a difficult time early on trying to kind of get myself in the realm of the eighties. But I think that was a good thing because it wasn't so, it didn't feel forced. Like it was gradual. Obviously the title card said, you know, 1987. And so you should have been like, yeah, we're in the eighties now, but it wasn't so overt that it trusted me as a, as an audience to say, look, we're going to give you these little things here. We're going to give you the breakfast club. We're going to drop a song here and there. And you mentioned that those songs are perfectly placed. They're also perfectly used to help further the story. It reminded me in some ways of Baby Driver, where the soundtrack became purposeful. Even the moment when Stan Bush's You Got the Touch came on there. It was a little homage back to the original Transformers, the movie. I was like, That's oh. definitely the one that stands out, I think. Oh, it's so good. And uh, and I love that. I mean, those are... that. There are pockets of of nostalgia that I I feel throughout the movie, and that's the one that stands out to me as well. I, I don't think it was overdone, even though there was a lot of it, but I felt like it felt genuine. I felt like Haley Steinfeld's character as Charlie didn't feel like she was trying to be an 80s girl. She was trying to be a, a teenager trying to avoid dealing with her dad's loss and trying to pour herself into being a mechanic and building this uh building this camaro camaro corvette i can't remember this this muscle car so i don't feel like it was distracting in that way but i think she kind of owned what it was like to be a teenager not necessarily an 80s teenager but being a teenager who lived in the 80s sort of as a byproduct yeah for the most part i would definitely agree with as far as her in the 80s I, i i think she is aging herself out of the teenager role in my opinion and there are moments in this, they, they try, they do a good job of with her costuming, essentially, and her clothing to keep it kind of baggy, which is setting in the 80s as well, which works. But there are definitely moments of her acting when I just feel like, man, like you are not 18 years old and at all like this character that you are portraying right now. So I, I kind of hope that maybe this is the end of her High school age run, it's been good, and she's done some awesome work, but I do think she's getting a little old for it. Do you know how old she is in real life? No idea. I think okay. early to mid-20s, I okay. would assume. So she could always do like a CW show and be a teenager. Yeah, I mean, she's not. She's by far <laughs> not the oldest person ever to do 18. I mean, my goodness, girls in their 30s have been playing 18-year-olds. I don't love that either, but that's Hollywood. It's Beverly Hills 90210, man. That's where it's in One Tree Hill. <laughs> I do want to get your thoughts on the ending because the whole ending sequence, I have lots of thoughts about like what takes place here. There, This is probably the part that keeps me from loving this movie. Or I guess I, I don't know if I love, hate, whatever. I, I really enjoy this movie, but it's the part that knocks, it keeps it from going over the top for me. And it starts with Charlie breaking into the fence. and I, And I think... The movie has not done anything incredibly that doesn't make sense up until this point. But when she goes to break the fence, she just clips it, right? It's supposed to be an electric fence. And Mimo even says to her, he's like, hey, did you check to see if that was on or not? And she goes, no, I just risked it, right? 
and I, I can't help, I, I'm, I'm not like completely hating on the movie for this, but I can't help but in my brain go, like the movie's over if that fence is on. Like you did nothing to, to see if it's on. Like it's a complete lucky moment where if the thing is on, you're dead and there's no more movie, but <laughs> B is taken over. That, and then the other thing that took me out of it, man, unfortunately, I was loving the ending of this movie, okay? My favorite kill is dropkick at the end. And he says, you think these chains can hold me? And it's like, I mean, I actually jumped out of the couch and said, fatality, when he gets ripped into pieces because Bumblebee pulls those chains. I mean, I was like, yes, cocky Decepticon, BBB got what he was coming to him, right? I love that. I love Bumblebee looking at Charlie as he's holding sh- uh, Shatter and, and and he shoots the dam knowing the water's coming because Shatter says something like, you know, it, this is going to kill us both. And you can tell like he's going to sacrifice himself for her. He's saying goodbye with his facial expression. Again, back to that expressiveness. I love that. But then they had to go and make her dive off the stupid crane. And everything about it screamed 80s <laughs> movie. So I'm torn because it both fits with the classic 80s adventure film and the way that those narratives tend to go. But it also, I felt, was so forced. It was such a, like, hey, we're going to give you this emotional payoff because she's going to dive again. Because it's got to happen in order for her us to believe that she has come to care about somebody and thus... She's going to make this change and this growth, and she's going to be able to move on past her grief. She's going to take this risk. And not only is it filmed in a way that just feels so cheesy to me, but it makes no sense, Patrick. What is she going to do? She can't pull Bumblebee out of the water. She is a human being. So she's diving into the water where Bumblebee is sinking, right? For what purpose exactly is this even happening? And of course... He miraculously turns back on and then gets himself up and out of the water. And so I just, I, I really, it, it knocked it down for me. I can't, I, I'm not saying it's terrible. It's still better than all the other Transformer movies, but I feel like there was almost like a masterpiece of a classic in the making here. And then it loses it for me right there at the end. Yeah. I just wondered how you, felt about it or if it didn't even make a dent in your mind no it made a dent it made a it made a dent in fact when she dove off the the tower i was like please don't make her do a flip please don't make her do that (laughs) you know in in that whole third act fight sequence with the with the highlights being what you mentioned the two kills really felt a little lazy in terms of resolution because we know that she's very innovative as a character. I mean, the movie helps set that up, that she's creative. She knows how to make things work here and there. She's a mechanical mind. So that wasn't in any, any doubt. But to have her do what she did in terms of stopping the transmission, I almost wish she would have had some kind of weapon, cheap weapon, to just smash the thing instead of pulling it out. But you're right. There was a lot about that whole bit where I didn't doubt her confidence level. I just doubted her ingenuity. 
and her ability to do what she was doing at that point. And I remember thinking, I don't see her doing these things. And you mentioned that this is typical 80s kind of wrap up resolution. And I think what would bother me, maybe this is what you're thinking, is that, yes, this is a movie that takes place in the 80s, but it's not an 80s movie. This isn't the Goonies. This isn't Better Off Dead. This is not a this is a movie that takes place in that time period, but it's still a movie that is being told in 2018, not in 1984. And so in that regard, it doesn't really have that kind of excuse unless it's playing that for a trope, which it's not because you and I have said over this last hour that there's a lot about this that feels very genuine. It feels like it could be great. And for me, that that whole bit, and you're right, diving in and was she going to save B? Was she going to sacrifice herself? You never really doubted that they were going to die, that there was going to be any kind of perishing of any kind. I think for for the purposes of the story, it was just kind of a nice little bow. And it wasn't a nice little bow. It was a little bit frayed for me. Uh, it didn't diminish my overall like liking the movie a lot. But you're right, this could have been amazing. This could have been like, yes. The other thing that bothered me, Aaron, was I almost expected a Pete's Dragon. I've, I've made so many movie references, and I apologize, but I don't. At the same time, there's a Pete's, I felt like a Pete's Dragon reference was going to be coming up where you have the end of the movie. We know that B is going to separate himself from her. But what I didn't get was her pushing him away and saying, you've got to do your thing. I almost expected her to want to stay with him because they built that friendship. like. They're a team. It's, it's B and Charlie. They're going to do that. And he has to, and maybe he says something in his newly created radio voice that says, I have to go. I have to be a hero or something along those lines. I didn't like that she was pushing him away, you know, that she was telling him, you've got to fulfill your destiny. I felt like he needed to be the one to tell her that and that that satisfaction of knowing she moved on, she's gone through those five stages, and then we get that final set of uh footage where she's driving the car you know she gets to start and all that stuff and and then everything else kind of plays itself out i thought that switch didn't work for me the fact that he was the one pushing her away or she was pushing him away and not vice versa i, I totally 100 percent did not get that feeling so i okay. i honestly didn't feel at all like she was pushing him away um i thought it was actually a really great save from I was getting ready to bring it up. Actually, I was going to say, because we like to be positive here on the show, and I just went on a little bit of a rant there, I love that the show brought it back for me in these two final moments where she's coming home and her family, and she's proud of them. We got that moment by Ron where he's like, I was trying to save the other kid. It was a lose-lose. <laughs> so good. And the kid in the back seat's like, her Otis, her brother, you know, and he's like, that was awesome. And then he pukes. Such a great scene. And it pays off because she comes back. She realizes like th it's all about this family and they were, they were there for her too. And she understands that it wasn't just about B. And I love how that pays off in those moments. But when she's saying goodbye to him, she says, thank you for making me feel like me again. And to me, that's all I needed. Like I thought it was incredibly sweet because we realized that not only did she make, did he help her feel like herself again, she helped him feel like himself slash find himself. 
that it it felt like a very natural party parting to me. No, I get I that. No, yeah, and when I say that she was pushing him away, I don't. I, I'm sorry. That what I meant was I wanted him to be the get one. Get out of here, you stupid full swagging bug. <laughs> yeah. She's like kicking him in the back. Yeah, exactly. Because then he turns into that. It's like you could have been this the whole time. Are you kidding me? You yeah. could have been a Camaro this whole time. That's the degree. I moment. think if he were again, no pun intended. I think if he were driving the conversation where they were then moving on to new seasons, that would be fine. The, the, the mutual, like, hey, I'm glad. That whole conversation could have taken place, but I felt like she was driving that to completion and not him. Had he been the one that was really kind of moving that conversation and saying, I've got to move on. And she's like, I know, and I really want to thank you for doing what you've done to, you know, what you mentioned earlier that would have been more satisfying to me because the way it felt was that he didn't want to leave. And, and she was kind of saying, thank you for that. That's, that's what I got. And I know that probably wasn't quite what it was, but I, I would have liked to have had him be the one that was kind of ending, ending that moment with mm. that same dialogue, but just coming from him. Yeah. What's well, so weird. Cause like, I just totally didn't at all feel like that. I do love it. And I love that they, close it out with the breakfast club song too, to bring it back. I think that that's just a wonderfully done use of that eighties nostalgia because it's not just, like I said, it's not just showing it to us on the screen one time being like, Hey, look, there was a movie in the eighties that we all remember. It's weaving it into the plot in multiple ways that actually fits. It's brilliantly done. Absolutely. Yeah, it's good yeah. stuff, man. So real quick, before we move into our connecting points, did this movie work for you? in kind of a dual purpose as a standalone as well as a prequel to this kind of shared universe? Do you feel like it was consistent with, at least in its narrative with, uh, with the shared universe? I haven't gone back and watched transformers. So honestly, I couldn't tell you because I think that I would need to go back and watch Bay's transformer movie to feel or to understand whether or not it was successful in bridging that gap. Yeah. I, Felt it was successful as a standalone for sure, and it left me wanting more movies in this style or in this tone. I don't want them all to be little comedic adventure movies just like this, but there is a sensibility that is here that is entirely different than Michael Bay's, Mm -hmm. and so I would love to see that continue on uh, with just more adventures with the transformers in general that focus on the transformers as human like characters with their emotions and their own character arcs that are equally important. I I would be absolutely down. So, you know, if they announce another movie and it has the same folks attached to it, I'm going to be there for sure. Yeah. So maybe a Bumblebee Grimlock buddy cop movie. (laughs) <laughs> you are like obsessed with everything being a buddy cop movie. Recently. No, just You're like one thing. I want no. Nick Fury and Coulson. And, and Coulson. that's the only one I've mentioned. You tell and me another I want, one I mentioned. Nope, there's another one. Nope, mm, it's not. Yep. I've just mentioned it several times. Now, maybe, maybe so. Yeah, I feel it like is so. Was, I feel like <laughs> I'm pushing for it. I want it to happen. When it feel happens, like there was another one. You heard it here first, remember. folks. This is what's going to happen. <laughs> it, it, when it happens, Feeling Film is going to be the one that originated it. All right. <laughs> anyway okay pretty sure you wanted like a lady bird slash charlie buddy cop movie or something 
<laughs> That'd be a road movie. I want a road movie. <laughs> my movies with <laughs> Lady Bird and Charlie. <laughs> oh they would my not gosh. get along. Anyway, a new podcast is going to emerge. <laughs> the Buddy Cop Movies podcast. <laughs> well, let's move into our connecting points. And uh, I don't think it's any surprise here. Uh, spoiler alert. We both had the same connecting point. So, Aaron, why don't you go ahead and start the convo rolling on on your CP or our CP at this point? Well, that's good because you forgot, like, the first part of this scene. So it's better that I introduce it. Um, <laughs> we did pick the same. Go go be a Transformer or something. Oh, my gosh. That that line, Patrick, <laughs> where they're oh. – where he's like – they're literally called, called Decepticons. Decepticons. Yes. <laughs> I spit out my drink when I heard that. <laughs> it was so hilarious. Was I was like, because we're all thinking that as an audience, and and I love it when the meta-ness pays off like that. Exactly. Perfect writing. Okay. So now that I've thrown you under the bus, the connecting point that is there for us, and pretty much everybody listening who's seen the movie would realize we haven't talked about this scene, it starts off with... Charlie and B in the garage and she says to him, you know, B music can help you say what you're feeling. He seems to be trying to express himself and she wants to help him out. He's got tapes and he's like putting them in to his tape player chest. And it's hilarious because she, he puts in the Smiths who I absolutely love being in this movie. And I absolutely love the Smiths and he spits it out. Right. And I'm like, no, But she has a really good point. Music can help you say what you're feeling. It's a really great thing to tell him as someone who is literally speaking through music. And as it progresses after that, he goes over to the shelf and he finds her dad's records. And, you know, she's like, I don't don't want you messing with that. But ultimately she puts one on and she tells him that it's her dad's favorite song, Unchained Melody. And it starts playing in the background. And she starts to reminisce, and this is where we learn uh, how he died of a heart attack suddenly, and they used to work on this car together, so we start to understand the significance. And I got to tell you, man, for me, A, it's a, a very sweet emotional moment that gives us a lot of character development for her that's important, but I recall this song being played by my parents all the time. Like This is a song from their era that kids who grew up in the 80s a lot of times would hear because their parents all loved it. And so I started having that music triggering these thoughts and feelings and emotions about my mom who's gone, um, and about my dad who lives in another state, you know, half the country away and I don't get to see you very often. So it, it's very real and it felt really natural. And the way that they bond in this moment together to that song is so sweet and it really comes back to that line for me that she starts off this this moment with where she tells him music can help you say what you're feeling i think that we often relate to times in our lives based on the songs that we remember and the lyrics sometimes to those songs i know i'm very guilty of sending a song to someone especially romantically of words and lyrics that I feel express myself better than I could. It's like, hey, listen to this song, right? And I love that. And I think that she's absolutely right. And it ties in perfectly with the way that B's character is designed. And so it ends in this 
really sweet hug with him comforting Charlie. And that's the moment when you know, like, okay, now everything that happens between the two of them is really creating this lifelong bond as they go forward. They are open to each other and it's just, it's really tender and I love how it's shot and and it's just great, great scene. Yeah. I mean, I don't have much more to add. That was fantastic. Other than the fact that this is the first real significant moment of vulnerability with both of them that embrace that he has with her and her accepting that. I mean, she's never afraid of him, but he was afraid of her. And I felt like, what she is needed someone to understand her grief, someone to understand her pain. He understands that even without having experienced that exact thing. I think the fact that a robotic hug is still a hug to her and she feels that kind of love from him that she's not gotten. One of the things that I love about the transformers universe is this dichotomy of how big these robots are compared to their human counterparts. And to have this giant be able to kneel down and give her that hug, I mean, that's a father to a daughter right there. Because that's the image that I see. When I kneel down and give my son a hug after he has cried for 20 minutes about something that is completely important to him, even though it probably makes no sense to me, that kind of visual that I think Knight and company give us reinforces the fact that they trust each other, that they want to be um, vulnerable with each other. And that, as you said, now they can move forward and be a team and be a partnership and be a comfort to one another and fight for one another. So it makes perfect sense that this is the connecting point because this is the moment that's pretty awesome. It's the moment they connect. It is the moment they connect. And we connect quite literally. literally. (laughs) Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. Coming up this week, we've got the Game of Thrones finale coming your way in a couple of days, along with a new FF Plus featuring our spoiler-free review of the Batman TMNT. That's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, for those of you who don't know. Team-up feature. And then we've got uh, our visit back to the theater next week where we're bringing you our coverage of the live action installment of Aladdin. So you'll want to come back and join us for all that good stuff. Aaron, thank you so much for a great conversation and we will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at Film, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.